You are listening to a message from First Assembly of God. We are a church on a mission to restore everyone, everywhere, to a loving and holy God. If today's message inspires you in any way, would you consider sharing it with a friend? This is just one of the many ways that you can be a part of what God is doing here at First Assembly. Hey, today we kick off our, uh, our Christmas series. How many are excited about Christmas? Ready for the holidays to be here? My boys are driving home today. I'm praying that God will give them mercy and uh, that that Jacob would uh, go easy on the the speedometer today on his way home and they would get safely home. Man, I love Christmas. Do you know the Christmas carol, Do You See What I See? How many know that Christmas carol? Do you see? Actually, you don't. It's actually, Do You Hear What I Hear? I didn't know that when we named the sermon series. I thought we were naming it the title of the Christmas carol. It's actually, Do You Hear? what I hear, but frankly, I think they've named it wrong. It should have been, do you see what I see? This song was written in, anyone know the year? I would doubt it, and don't Google it. A lot of, I have a good guess, 1935, a lot of our Christmas carols were written all the way back, maybe even into the 1800s or older. This is a relatively new Christmas carol. Do you hear what I hear? In fact, I want you to see if you can pick out Something in the song that gives a clue to the context, to the year, to the era in history in which this American Christmas song, this Christmas carol was written. Here's the first verse. Said the night wind to the little lamb. Let's say it together. Do you see what I see? Come on, let's work together. (laughs) Way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what I see? A star, a star dancing in the night. There's a clue there. A star, a star dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. With a tail as big as a kite. What kind of star dances through the night with a tail streaming behind it? This song was written... In 1962, what was happening? I don't know, all the high school students went, wow, that's a long time ago. <laughs> 1962, a young new president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was in the Oval Office. 1962, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis when elementary and high school students across this country probably practiced weekly Nuclear war drills, right? A tense time. A time of fear. A time where literally the authors, there were two writers of this Christmas carol who said while they were composing it and producing it, they had the radio on listening for the annihilation of the United States. A star, a star, dancing through the night with a streaming tail. It's a missile. And the writers say that as they were working on this song, the little lambs are children in strollers. And the whisper of the wind, do you see what I see? In this world of tension and chaos, in moments of fear, can you see what I see. Can you hear what God hears? 
Can you know what God knows? All series long, we're going to be asking ourselves that question. Do you see what God sees? Do you see what I see? Today, we'll talk about how God can see a miracle even in the mess. We'll talk about how God sends us direction, right? He gives us um, points of light and direction in times of decision. He gives us signs in the darkness, pointing us to the Savior even when we're not expecting it. And God shouts with a voice louder than the sea. Those of you who know the lyric of the song, God shouts victory over evil. Do you see what I see? As we look for the next four weeks at the birth narrative, the birth story of Jesus, do you see what I see? In the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus unpacks the story that leads to Jesus' birth, the book of Matthew begins his story with 17 verses that I hope you don't read on Christmas morning. Of all the passages of Scripture, if you gather your family around the Christmas tree and you say, hey, before we, read the, before we open the presents today, let's read the Christmas story. Please don't start in Matthew chapter 1 with the first 17 verses because it's the genealogy. It's all of the begats and who was the father of who and this long 17-verse genealogy that if you start reading that on Christmas morning, your kids will have all the presents unwrapped before you're done. Trust me. Either that or all the old people will fall asleep. In this story, are you able to see what God sees? It begins this way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David. Jesus is the son of kingly people. The king David. Jesus, the son, the descendant of kings. Wow, mighty, powerful, awesome. The son, not just of David, but the son of Abraham. A son of the chosen family to bring redemption and blessing to the world. I mean, Jesus had it made. A son of kings, a son of the chosen people. I mean, Jesus' family tree must have just like rocking awesome. How many have ever done a, a, a genogram? Have you done a genogram before? It kind of looks like this, where you trace back your family tree. You have your parents and your siblings and your grandparents, maybe your great-grandparents, and you take little notes about when they were born, when they died, and the, the chart. How many have done one of these before? You traced your family tree. It's a genogram. Maybe if you are studying counseling or therapy or a psychologist, you've probably done many of these as you trace back the mental health, perhaps, of your family. You're tracking you know, issues in your household and your family. If you're in the medical field, you can use these to try to trace and diagnose the, the, the prevalence of disease or problems, a genogram. How many have one that looks like this? This is a 41's genogram. We just laid to rest President H. George H.W. Bush, President number 41 with his family tree, a family tree of like American royalty, right? Two presidents a governor of one of our largest states. I mean, that is a pedigree. How many have a genogram like that? How many looks more like this? Let's say, yeah, that's probably more like my family right there, right? Yeah. Of all the families on earth, 
of all the families on earth for all time, all human history, you would think that it would be Jesus' family that would be the most pristine, the most mess-free. How many have a few messes in your family? Maybe you have made a few messes in your family. Maybe you were born into a mess. Maybe you're in one right now. And you think, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why this mess? A miracle in the mess. About 15 years ago or so, longer than that actually, late 90s as a youth pastor in Joliet, Illinois. How many know where Joliet, Illinois is? Some of you say Joliet, Joliet, Illinois. It's kind of a blue-collar, rough. The, the, the mascot for the high school is the Steelman. I mean, it's a tough town. And, you know, I was a youth pastor there, and I loved it. And our youth group was going awesome. Probably about three and a half years into my time there, we moved into the sanctuary. I mean, it was a packed house, and it was parent night. Wednesday night, parent night, full house. And, man, I was a preaching machine that night. We were talking about a family messes and how everyone in the youth group, every family represented had some junk in the family. How many know what a family junk drawer is, right? Probably in your kitchen, if you've got a laundry room that is big enough to have cabinetry, maybe there's a, a cabinet there that's a junk drawer. You know what the junk drawer is? Raise your hand like, I know, right? You've got, you've got people coming over and you, they were unannounced. You're like grabbing stuff off the kitchen table and shoving it in there and slamming it shut. And if your kids are like, hey, do we have a post-it note? Do we have a pencil? I lost an earring back. Go check the... Because it's probably in the junk drawer, right? Junk drawers. It's where you stuff things away. All the things that you really don't know how to categorize, things that really don't have a place, things that just kind of don't belong, they go in the junk drawer. So that was kind of the metaphor on that parent night, that every student, every family has stuff in the junk drawers of their story and the youth ministry. You know, we called it crew. Crew was a place to come and people could find healing and help when they're dealing with stuff in the junk drawer of their life. And I told some of my stories. Um, I've, got, I've got, you know, family just like yours. I have some cousins that work for the FBI. I've got cousins that work in the State Department. And I have cousins that have committed felonies that are still in prison. I've got an uncle who, um, no, a cousin who works for the FBI and an uncle who was on the FBI's most wanted list. I've got an uncle who took his own life. How many have a family with some junk in the junk drawer, right? All of us do. All of us. So, I'm, man, I'm preaching that, you know, we've, and it, I said one of the dumbest things, if not the dumbest thing I've ever said while I'm preaching. So I've got all the parents there, all the students. I'm like, man, you can come to crew. You can come to the youth group. Bring your messes. Bring all the junk. We, we, you know, you know, I got it stuffed in the junk drawer. And I told the parents, moms, dads, this place is a safe place to send your kids. You can send your kids here, and we're going to open their drawers and look inside. That was bad. 
There was one Wednesday night, the cops came to our youth group, and um, we had a runaway in our youth group, and the cops and the family knew he had come to youth group, even though he'd run away, and uh, they found him. Thankfully, the cops didn't come the night I said that. They might have taken me away. <laughs> a junk drawer. Messes. You would think if there's one family tree that should be junk-free, if there's one plot line that shouldn't have pain and dysfunction, it should be Jesus's. Like if there's one family that had to have it all together, from the Garden of Eden to the empty tomb, God had to have Jesus come. I mean, Jesus was promised all the way back at creation. The moment mankind, woman, and man said, God, thank you for all of your wisdom, the experience you offer me, the knowledge you offer me, the life you tell me to live, thank you for that, but I'm going to experience my own path. I want knowledge on my own. I want to be my own authority Thank you, but no thanks. From that moment, when humanity told God no thanks, God said, someday I'm going to fix this whole mess, and I'm going to send a child, and that child will redeem the world. From family number one all the way to Mary and Joseph, if there's one family that God had to keep mess-free, it had to be Jesus's. Somehow from Adam and Eve to Mary and Joseph, God had to make sure his will was accomplished and it was done. There was no room for error, no room for sin. No one could mess up in that family. Oh, how wrong you are. Is God capable of, 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 of accomplishing his sovereign will in spite of the messes that we've inherited or that we've caused or that we find ourselves in. The genealogy of Jesus starts out so pristine and so pretty. The story of Jesus' family tree, the son of a king, the son of promise, and then Matthew begins unpacking the history. And if you read it on Christmas morning, you might fall asleep and your kids get bored and the presents start getting unwrapped before you're done. But man, is there a lot there. Here's your question. Can God work miracles in spite of human messes? Maybe you're here today and you've been born into a mess. You say, oh, Joel, you should see my parents. Maybe you don't even know them. Maybe there's a history of brokenness and addiction and destruction. Maybe you've caused a few messes today. Maybe you're here and you're on marriage three or four, and you're like, I'm not even going to have my family home for Christmas. Half of them over there, they won't talk to me. The other half are there, and you're like, man, I am in a mess. Can God still work a miraculous path in your life? You have got to ask yourself that question. And if there's any family that should be pristine and perfect, you would think it would be Jesus's. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, verse 2, was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his ten brothers. 
and you want to begin with a messed up family, let's start right there. Jacob was the father of Judah and a whole bunch of brothers. How many wives did Jacob end up with when it was all said and done? How many women were living in the same household, all mothers, all married to Jacob? How many? Let's count them. Say four. Wow, you guessed right. You guys are really sharp today. <laughs> Jacob and his four wives and their 11 boys. You talk about crazy. You talk about dysfunctional family. I know the Beach Boys made a great song, Beautiful Harmonies. Two girls for every boy makes a great song that makes a terrible marital relationship. And this is four girls for one Jacob. And listen to what happened. Of course, you might know the story of Joseph faking his murder, selling him off for slavery. Matthew glosses over that and goes right to something else. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of twin boys, Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Tamar is not Judah's wife. In fact, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Tamar was married first to Judah's son Ur and then to Onan, because Ur died, married to Onan, Onan died, and Tamar was a widow twice over, waiting to marry into the family again. She dressed up like a prostitute. Judah, his wife had died, is looking for a good time. He hires his dressed up and disguised daughter-in-law. One thing led to a pregnancy, and you know what that thing is. Here in Jesus' family tree is a very unhealthy, sinful, incestuous relationship that gave birth to twins. Do you have some ugly in your family? Can God still work His purpose in spite of human sin? Verse 3, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of a great man named Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Maybe you think, well, I know one Rahab in the Bible. Yep, it's that Rahab. Rahab, a resident of the city of Jericho. You probably remember, know the little song, Joshua fought the battle of? He fought the battle of? And the walls came? Well, Rahab lived in the wall. Rahab was a resident of the city of Jericho that was in the promised land. And Joshua and the people of God were coming. And Rahab, who was pagan, wasn't a son or daughter of Israel, didn't know much about Yahweh, but she did have faith that the God of the Israelites was going to win this battle. And so when the spies came, she protected them. And she said, I believe that your God is going to defeat us. Will you remember to protect me and my household when you come? At best, perhaps Rahab was an innkeeper. Most likely, she was a brothel owner, a prostitute who had an inn on, uh, inside the wall of Jericho to host travelers for their sexual pleasure. Yet in spite of her history, Rahab said, I believe this God is the one true God. And she protected the spies. And of course, when the walls came tumbling down, Rahab wasn't in the walls. She was protected by the people of God. In fact, the book of Joshua says, Rahab 
and her, her kids and her family continue to live with the people of Israel. And she evidently married a guy named Solomon. Solomon took in this former prostitute, this now lady who believed in the God of Israel. They married and they gave birth to Boaz. And the son of a former prostitute is the one who would later marry, let's read it, Boaz, born by Rahab, verse 5, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by a woman named Ruth, a lady who was a widow in her youth, a young lady too, too early in marriage to be burying her husband. And then here's this precious Ruth, Husband has died, no children, becomes an immigrant beggar in Israel, and an honorable man, the son of Solomon and the former prostitute Rahab. Boaz says, I will protect you, I will marry you, give you honor and dignity. And that's how the family gives birth, not children, but grandchildren. To who? King David. You start with such a pretty story. The story of Jesus' family, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But if you fail to, to see and to read and to know the details, you think, man, how easy would it be to be born in the family line of kings and the family line of the chosen people? And yet, mess after mess. Can God still work in the human story in spite of the messes we make? Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, not his own spouse, not his own wife, but the wife of another man. David the king got what he wanted, and he wanted another woman. And when you're a king and you want something, you get it. You probably know the story. It was the season in which the armies were all gone and David the king was not with them. He stayed home. He's up on his courtyard overlooking the city and he looks down below and what does he see? But a naked woman bathing. To which he says, I want her. And he got her. And he got her pregnant. Suddenly, what's David to do? He's committed adultery. The woman he's cheated with is now pregnant. Her husband, Bathsheba's husband, is off to war. So he calls Uriah home. He calls the soldier home and says, why don't you come home, relax, hoping that he would have sex with his wife. And then when nine months later goes by and Bathsheba gives birth, you know, it would all be okay. No one would know it was David. Like he could lie and cover it up. But Uriah was a more honorable man than King David. Uriah refused to have sex with his wife. He said, how can I enjoy the pleasures of my bride when my fellow soldiers are laying their life on the line. And so he wouldn't sleep with his wife. So David is like, oh no, I'm going to get found out. What's going to happen? So David sends Uriah back to the front line and he tells his colonels, he tells his platoon leaders, hey, send Uriah up to the front line where the fighting is the most intense. And then everyone withdraw and leave Uriah there by himself, surrounded, and he'll be killed. And that's exactly what happens. David said, I want her. He got her, got her pregnant, and he had the husband killed. Anyone have a mess in your family? Can God still work in the messes of our lives? 
Maybe you're here today and say, Pastor Joel, it wasn't my choice. You don't know what I've been born into. You don't know the mess. You don't know the, the pain in my past. You don't know the way I was born. You don't know the way I was raised. You're right, I don't. But your mess doesn't have to cancel the sovereign work of God in your life. You may say, Pastor Joel, you don't know the messes I've made. You're right, I don't. I don't know the choices you've made, the destruction you've caused. I have no clue. But I know this, your mess does not have to negate the miraculous power of the sovereign God to work something good into your life. Maybe it's a mess you've made. Maybe it's a mess you've come into. Maybe it's just a mess you're in. It's just life, disease, death, destruction. God, why this mess? Do you see what I see? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. That transition was a tough one. Solomon's son Rehoboam led the division of the nation into perpetual sin, and generations go by, and you get to verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, or uh, Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, total defeat, military annihilation, tens of thousands of people starved and dead because of sin. An entire nation deported. Verse 15, Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, who wasn't the biological father, but he was the husband of Mary, the mother of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Matthew buttons it all up nicely. The generations to Abraham to David were 14 spotless, unstained by sin, perfectly arranged generations. And then from David to the deportation, nothing ever went wrong there. And from the, the deportation to Babylon to Christ, another 14 generations. Let me ask you a couple questions. Why wasn't the story of Jesus sin-free? Why wasn't the story of Jesus' arrival to earth mess-free, pristine and beautiful like royalty, like the chosen family should be? Why didn't God stop incest from happening? Why didn't God prevent Ruth from burying her young husband? Why didn't God say no to David before he could make that big mistake and then a second mistake to cover it up? Why didn't God? Have you ever asked God why? Why? Why didn't you, God? Why couldn't you? Remember, at Hope Children's Hospital in Chicago, in Oak Lawn, asking God why. Why? Why us? Why now? Why this? And I remember that conversation as a pivotal moment in my life. Wandered out of our hospital room, down to the main floor, out to get some fresh air, sitting on a bench outside the entrance of that hospital. God, why? I don't understand. Why us? And it's like God just sat down on the park bench next to me. And as the next car pulled up, stopped, and the valet helped the mom out, and a dad, and a child, and then went this family into the hospital. And God says, well, why them? And then the next family came, single mom and a daughter. Why them? And the next car came, and God just stripped me down. So you think I love you more than I love them? You think they should and not you? 
and I stopped asking God the question because I didn't have an answer. Have you ever asked God why this mess? Do you see what God sees? That there indeed can be a mess in the, I mean, there can be a miracle in the mess. That in spite of human choices, human failures, in spite of just outright dysfunctional, painful sin, God's sovereign purpose can still be fulfilled in our lives. Some observations. Number one, your mess is not an isolated incident. You are not alone. You are not the only one in this congregation that's enduring a mess. Seated around you are lots of other messes too. You just don't know it. I can tell you from experience that when you are suffering, not like a bad week, not a bad month, but when you are suffering, you suffer alone, you feel alone, because no one can truly connect with that real point of need. No one is enduring that chemo the way you are. No one is experiencing that loss, that sense of abandonment. You are alone in your suffering. I get it. To suffer is to feel alone. That's normal. But if you can take a big step back, you can say, you know what? I am not alone. That my mess is just like a lot of other messes around me. It's just my turn. Your mess does not make you isolated, make you one of a kind failure, doesn't make you the one victim that's not going to make it. God can do a miracle in the midst of your mess. You're not alone. You're not isolated. Number two, frankly, you need to know the story of God better. Can I be so bold as to say, if you don't know Scripture, you will probably think, this is just you. You blew it. Your parents blew it. Someone else made the mess, and it's all over for you. You are now sentenced to victimhood, and that's a lie. You just don't know the story of God. This is common to human nature, to suffer, to be in a mess, to sin against one another, to feel this pain and isolation. Welcome to humanity, and yet welcome to God working miracles in spite of what people do to each other. Do you know the story of God well enough that when you suffer, you're able to say, okay, God still worked in them, He can still work in me, and you stand in faith. If your experience with the story of God is this once-a-week little Bible pill, or frankly, for most of us, maybe once-a-month Bible pill, you just come pop the vitamin, the Bible vitamin that Pastor Joel dispenses. If that's all you've got, you're anemic and you're weak and you won't connect with the history and the story and the power of God when you are suffering. You won't stand. But if you know that your story is just like that story, and that the God who worked in them is the same God that can work in me. You will probably choke and spit up when the waves of life come over you. Yes, you will gasp for air, but you won't drown. You will go through the fire, absolutely you will, but you won't stink of smoke. You will go through the deserts, but there will be streams of refreshment for you along the way. You will make it standing firm because you know I'm not alone and I know this is how God has worked for all time and he can work in me. Do you see what I see? There are miracles even in the messes of humanity. 
Do you see what God sees? Do you think today, do you think today that God cared about the story from creation to Jesus? Do you think God cared about how Abraham's family would live and the choices they would make? Do you think God cared about David? Do you think God cared about this path? Of course he did. And yet the messes still happened and God still worked. And he can do the same in our life. What will you do in the mess? What will you do in the mess? Most people stuff it in the junk drawers of life. Most people have this experience, the choices they made, their history that's ugly, the pain in their family, and they say, please, no one look. Please, no one understand this. Please, no one get it. And you put it in a little box. You cover it up with duct tape, and you stuff it in a corner, put it in the junk drawer, and shut it tight and hope no one ever opens it up. And you hide. That only leads to shame. An isolation like no one else can ever know. No one else can ever experience this. I've got to hide this. And you only have guilt and shame buried in there. And it will hinder your ability to experience the mercy and grace of God. Because when you confess it, I mean, you know, in wisdom, in the safety of a healthy life group, where you're, you know, you're tiptoeing into a topic and you say, yeah, my mom committed suicide. And you let that out. And suddenly, it's right there in the middle of the room. And grace and mercy can be applied. And someone else in the life group says, man, I'm sorry. My cousin did. Yeah. Someone else says, man, I've never endured that. But man, I'm sorry for that pain. And suddenly, what was once trapped in the junk drawer is out there, and mercy and grace can be applied. What's your responsibility in the messes of life? Get it out of the junk drawer in a wise and safe way and say, this is who I am. This is what has happened. This is what I've done. And let healthy believers and the voice of the Holy Spirit say, hey, I got a miracle in the midst of your mess. Here's mercy to forgive you. Here's grace to empower new life in you. And then God does his part of redemption and restoration. He redeems it. What looks like it's broken, twisted, and ugly, God somehow works into a miraculous story of grace and goodness that everyone stands back and say, how on earth did Jesus get here through all of this? How on earth did your family get to where it is? How did you find that next spouse? How did you ever recover from that? How did you ever rebuild that? And you say, it wasn't me. It was God's redemption. He put it all together, and he restores it into something beautiful, like an old beater car that has been delicately put back together and repainted, and now when it drives down the road, it is in a hunk of junk. Everyone turns and goes, wow. That's the goodness of God's miracles in life's messes. So what are you going to do? Some of you today need to make a decision, a decision to confess, to bring that out. In a few moments, we're going to all be standing and praying. Some of you just need to come forward to a prayer team. Some of them will be a lot older than you. Some of them may be younger than you and just say, hey, I'm praying about this part of my life. And you think, are these people going to laugh at me? Are they going to reject me? No. Mercy, grace, redemption, restoration. And God can begin working miracles in the midst of the mess.
one of my missionary friends, the first time I met her, she shared the story about how her husband had committed adultery while they're on the mission field in Africa. They sought counseling. They wanted God to save it. She wanted God to save her marriage, but he wanted to stay with the other woman, and that's where it went. First time I met the husband was around the presbytery table, where it's a big word for the leaders of Illinois, and we, we dismissed him. He's gone. You're no longer able to do ministry. You've made choices that negate your role in ministry in the assemblies of God. And here was the, now the divorcee called to ministry, two young teenage girls to, to raise as a single mom. And you would think, what on earth can God do with this mess? It's sinful. It's wrong. It's destructive. Can God do anything? And I remember my missionary friend telling me about her dream. When she was at her bottom, God gave her a vision and a dream of a Tiffany lamp. I may have shared this story here once before. You know what a Tiffany lamp is, right? All the broken, multicolored pieces of glass that are put together to make a delicate lamp out of all the broken pieces. And, and she said, God gave me that picture to tell me that even with all these scattered pieces of glass, all the shards of my life that if I trusted him, God could put it all together. Now her kids are grown. Now she's grandma. She's remarried. A beautiful, awesome husband also called the ministry and now they're missionaries together. God has healed so many wounds and God has created a miraculous story out of look like a desperate mess. God can do that in our lives. Will you stand with me this morning? If you're here today and this Christmas feels a little bit more like a mess than a miracle. You've come to the right place today. In fact, I believe someone here, maybe a few of us, are here just for today. Like this is your Sunday. And you need not slip out to the bell choir. Our kids are getting ready. It's going to be awesome and beautiful. But you need to take a few moments to bring your mess before the Lord. Open the junk drawer and just say, God, this is it. This is the reality of who I am, where I'm at, what's been done to me or what I've done to others, and allow grace and mercy to come and begin redeeming and restoring. So in our closing moments, would you just pray with me? Maybe you want to close your eyes. Some of us bow our heads. You don't need to, but let's kind of do that, God. We bring our stories to you. We're so tempted to think that our story is too messy for you to be at work. And that is so untrue. When we read scripture, we see all of the messes that you worked through, that you worked in spite of, that you worked to overcome. And we see ourselves in those stories. Jesus, work your miracle in the midst of our messes. Some of you need to join our prayer team this morning, and I pray you'll do that before you go your way. God bless you. We hope that you got a lot out of today's message and that you'll share it with a friend. To stay connected with what's happening here at First Assembly, be sure to go to the App Store and type in 1-A-G-B-N to download the app. Remember, God's created you for a great purpose. 
Now go and live it out today.